You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? Hey, I am so glad. Can I just say I'm so glad that you guys are here at the 1215 because you guys have the wisdom to know that even when this service lets out, you will have more than four hours before kickoff. And some people are like, no, I got to get there because it's like they start the pregame coverage at like 6 a.m. And it's the same thing over. What do you think about what this last guy just said? It's like people are just talking nonsense for 12 hours until it actually happens and ends up totally different than what they thought. So anyway, my point is, I'm really glad that you're here, and I happen to like 1215 best. So uh, anyway, <clears throat> I also may have told the other two services the same thing. So uh, <laughs> I didn't, but wouldn't that have been something if I did? <laughs> so I'll tell you that a couple of years ago, uh, I, was, I got invited to speak at this leadership event in uh, Southern California. So I, uh, I, I was flying there with, a, my wife couldn't go, I was flying with a friend, and uh, I, I missed my flight completely. I almost didn't make it to the event. So my buddy and I, we get to the airport <clears throat> up over an hour before the flight takes off. We didn't check bags because if you check a bag on a four-day flight, you're just a rookie when it comes to travel. So this is, anyway, you, can, you should be able to, four days, you should be able to do in a backpack. So anyway, but that's a conversation for another time. But we get there. TSA is so slow. I mean, painfully slow. And if you're not aware, TSA stands for thousands standing around. And um, so <clears throat> we, uh, I'm like almost 50 minutes waiting for this line to move. Then I have to tell, I have to grab someone from TSA. I'm like, look, my flight is already boarding and I've been in line for almost an hour. So they kind of rush me through the line. And, you know, because Murphy's Law is a thing, um, the the, the terminal, you know, the, the gate that we're at is like 17 miles away from where we came in. So, so we are running to make it. But as we get close, and we're making pretty good time, but as we get closer, I see that right by the, the, the gate we're leaving, right uh, a little ways away, there's a Versailles restaurant. And I'm like, man, if I could just stop for a minute and grab a couple of paparrellanas, I could eat that and kind of avoid the airplane food on this five-hour flight to California. <clears throat> so I go, I get in line, and my buddy's like, we have to go. There is no time. And I'm like, dude, relax. I have never missed a flight in my life. So we stop. I get to the front of the line, and they're like, oh, we just, the person in front of you bought the last paparrellana. And I'm like, you guys are all dead to me. And so I say, forget it. And I start running to the gate. And right when I get to the gate, the lady is closing the door to the plane. And I say, hey, look, listen, we're on this flight. So you can just, just let us in. And, and she's like, no, I'm sorry, it's, it's done. And, and, and I'm like, uh, she's like, I can get you on the 145 flight that leaves in three hours. And I'm like, no, no, I'm not waiting around the airport. I put me, she's like, you know what, I'll call. She calls and she's like, yeah, they said they're not opening. And I'm like, the, the, the vacuum tube is still attached. I don't know any terms for airplane stuff, but whatever that vacuum tube is that connects the airport to the plane, that was still attached. And I know anybody who's a pilot in this church is just cringing at my lack of knowledge. So this is, and I apologize. But anyway, so, um, and I said, look, get me on the phone with the pilot. 
and uh, I can talk him into opening the door. And she's like, sir, that's not the way this works. And this is around the time that airlines started beating people up. So I didn't want to be like Delta's next victim. So I'm like, you know what? Let me just back off. And, uh, and, I'm, and I'm like, but listen, why didn't, you, why didn't you call us on the loudspeaker? And she's like, oh, you know, we only do that for international flights. And, and I was, you know, anyway, I just like, all right, forget it. So my buddy turns to me and he goes, well, now I have plenty of time to get those paparrellanas that you wanted. <laughs> And I'm like, dude, don't even judge me, Mr. Hey, can you grab me a couple of croquetas when you get to the front of the line? And I don't even want to hear it. So, but if you've ever, you know the frustration. If you've ever missed a flight, it's super frustrating and all that. And then, <clears throat> but we hate missing anything. And I've just noticed that about us. Um, most of us suffer from what's called FOMO. And uh, which is, you know, if you're over 40, let me explain, if you're like me. Um, so I, I uh, <laughs> FOMO means the fear of missing out. Uh, my kids had to explain that to me um, because I'm on the very end of 40. Uh, so I like to say I'm 49.95. But um, so anyway, <clears throat> I'm right about there. So, but anyway, but if you've ever if you've ever experienced that, you know, like that you missed out on something. Like you ever find out that your friends went to the movies and they didn't invite you, and you're like, hey. I, I like going to the movies too. Like what's going on, you know, or you open social media and you're like, hey, my family went to Disney without me. Uh, I, I had, one time I opened social media and I found out that someone in my extended family got married and they didn't invite me. And I was so bothered by it. And, uh, and I, I was telling Carrie, and I'm like, that was so rude of them. And, and my wife was like, did you want to go? And I'm like, no, that's not even the point. I wanted them to spend the money to invite me so that I could not RSVP, not buy a gift, but I just wanted to know they thought of me. Is that too much to ask? And she's like, yeah, that's weird. And uh, so, but this, this idea of missing out is really at the heart of what Jesus is talking about as he ends his message on the subject of his return and what we should be uh, looking like and living like, what the world looks like, um, at the time of his return. Now, this is message, if you can believe it, number 39 in the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, next week, we'll pick back up on the narrative of the story because we've been slowing down to really look at the rich words of Jesus and this teaching on the end times and his return and all of that. So we're going to kind of close out uh, with <clears throat> a really powerful section because Jesus, like a master teacher, has been telling us all this, and then he's going to tell us a couple of stories, which he's done, and then he's going to just really nail home this, bring home this one point and give us this exhortation at the end. And, um, you know, the, the end of this entire message is really about what our lives should look like as we wait for his return. And sometimes when we're like, you know, as we're waiting for the end of the world, that sounds like uh, you know, to become some kind of prepper, or it's like, I got to stockpile weapons and Vienna sausages. It's nothing like that. Instead, it has to do with us being ready, that Jesus could come back today. And I want to make sure, we need to make sure we're investing our lives in the things that matter most and not missing out on what matters most. So we're going to start in uh, Matthew chapter 25. We're going to start in verse 14, and here's what we read. <clears throat> It says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability, and immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had five talents 
received the five talents, went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had two talents gained two more. But the one who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. Now, after a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. And his Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And he who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents beside them. And his Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And then he who had received one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. You ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And, And at my coming, I would have received my own with interest. So take the talent from him, give it to others who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has more, for everyone who has more will be given and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And if you pause there and give me your attention, what do we do when we, as we wait? And this is the point of what Jesus is saying as we talk about not missing out. The first is this, if you're a note taker, is that I need to invest my life. Now, here's the thing that's important for us to understand. When he talks about talent, that he gave one, one talent, two talent, five talents, the talent isn't like the ability to dance or juggle, or if you get two, I guess you could be a juggling dancer. Um, But a talent is a unit of weight. The master is giving each of his servants a weight of money to invest until he returns. And we know what kind of money it is from verse 18, uh, which we read that said he came, uh, he who had one talent dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. The Greek word there is the word argurian, which means is translated silver um, most of the time in the Bible. So we know that it's, it's money, but it's actually silver. A talent in that culture weighed 75 pounds. And if what's being given is silver, like we read in in, in the original language, 75 pounds of silver is the equivalent to about 20 years wages. Now, just to kind of put it in American currency, uh, in America, you know, all 50 states, the average of all salaries uh, in in America, the average yearly salary is $56,500. If this guy is getting... about 20 years wages of that, he's getting about $1.13 million. And I remember when I used to read this story as a young Christian, I used to always feel bad for the guy that got one. Now I realize he got over a million bucks. I don't feel bad anymore. Like, hey, you're doing okay, buddy. Um, Now, the second guy gets about $2.26 million. He's doing okay. The guy that gets the five talents, that's about 100 years wages or about uh, $5.7 million. So, now, and here, this is the point. Remember, sometimes we hear this passage taught and it gets completely lifted out of the context 
and we don't understand why it's being taught to us. This is all in context of the fact that Jesus is coming back. And if Jesus is coming back, he wants us to invest our lives in things that matter. If you remember, we finished the last message talking about the parable of the 10 virgins or the 10 bridesmaids, that five were ready and five were not. And so the idea is, is that he wants all of us to be ready. He's given all of us uh, talents, gifts, whatever it is, and that we should be investing our lives in things that matter. But I want you to notice something, and this is very important, that these talents did not double by themselves. The initial talent was given by the master to the servants graciously, but he was, God is expecting something of us. He's expecting us to develop the things that we've been given so that they bear fruit. Now, the only way to really explain this is to talk about mangoes. Now, it's going to be mango season pretty soon. And mango season starts around May. And I have to kind of prepare myself emotionally for mango season because I get more mangoes than I know what to do with. And everyone I know, uh, when mango season hits, I start getting a bag of mangoes almost every day. And it's just like... Sometimes the most random people, people I've never even met, like, Pastor, here's some mangoes. And, and now, here's the thing you have to understand. I hate mangoes. <laughs> and I get hundreds of mangoes. Now, and I, I don't even, thankfully, my daughter Mia is the president of the Mango Lover Society because she could eat mangoes breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day and never get sick of them. My dad used to have this 30-foot mango tree in the old house that he used to live in this house in Coral Gables. And um, he had this... Uh, this mango tree that was probably close to 30 feet tall. And it produced so much fruit, he couldn't even handle it. In fact, he bought one of these poles that you would use to change light bulbs. But he bought one of these poles so that he could pull the mangoes off the top of the tree. Because he says, if I don't start pulling mangoes, they'll get too ripe. They'll fall off the tree. They'll explode in the yard. And now I've got all these critters eating mangoes in the front yard. So I got I to gotta pull them. So every time I see him, um, he would give me three or four bags of mangoes every time I saw him. And I'm like, Papa, when have you ever seen me eat a mango in my life? In fact, when have you seen me eat any fruit ever? And, uh, and he's like, I know, but Robert, I can't contain the mangoes. You just got to give them away. And I'm like, to who? Uh, and he's like, you know, give them to anyone. I'm like, so you want me to be like the guy that, on the street selling mamoncillo, but I'm just giving, a, I'm, not, I'm not charging, I'm just giving stuff away. And he's like, well, you know, whatever floats your boat, just do it. So anyway, but here's the point, is that the mango tree doesn't get to be 30 feet tall by itself. Someone is planting it, someone is watering it, someone is tending to that tree so it gets to the point where now it starts bearing an incredible amount of fruit. And what's amazing about this thing bearing tons of fruit is that it, when you start bearing a lot of fruit, it stops being about you. And now you're bearing fruit and you're a blessing to everyone around you. And now, and here's the cool thing, is that then you become such a blessing. Now you're blessing people that you don't even know. And this is why the master is upset at the guy who simply had one talent and, and just did nothing with it. And, 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 and listen, the point is, the master has given us, all of us, something. And our job, whatever that talent or ability, whatever it is, whatever... Our job is to identify what it is, develop it, and then deploy it as a gift to the world to serve God's people. Uh, Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus, would say it this way in his first letter. He says, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others. 
as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do it with the strength that God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. Now, let me explain it this way. Uh, On Friday, I had to go to the post office to mail out a few things. And I've been going to the same post office for probably about 15 years. And so I I know everybody there. And um, anyway, uh, uh, I'm talking to one of the guys. And he says, hey, Bob, do you remember a couple of years ago when you talked about St. Patrick's Day to everyone at the post office. And I was, try- I, was, I was trying to remember everything that you said. And so anyway, now let me explain what that, what that means. So this is probably about four years ago. Um, I'm at the post office mailing some stuff out. And it is, there's, I mean, so many people in line. And I finally get to the counter. And um, the person that usually helps me is there. And um, she says, so what are you doing for St. Patrick's Day? And um, I said, well, St. Patrick's Day is on a Sunday, so I'm going to church. She's like, church? St. Patrick's Day is about drinking and getting crazy. And I said, and at this point, everybody's listening to our conversation. Because I don't know if you know this about the post office. They really don't care much about the entertainment while you wait. There's no music. There's nothing on the walls to read. There's nothing, right? You're just reading like the labels. You know, there's, there's nothing. It's like, you wonder why people go postal. It's like, maybe you throw on some music so people don't lose their minds. Anyway, so everybody in line is listening to our conversation. And so I say, do you know that St. Patrick was a missionary, a Christian missionary to Ireland who planted over 400 churches in Ireland and led thousands of people to Jesus? I say that this guy's six people deep in the line. He goes, really, is that true? I'm like, oh, you're a part of this now? And uh, so now I turn around and now I'm preaching because I got a crowd. And so, and so I, say, I say, yeah, that's right. I said, so if you want to honor St. Patrick this weekend, go to church. And the lady behind the counter says, okay, but how did we end up with partying in leprechauns? I said, that's what happens when you put drunk people in charge of a holiday. <laughs> and, uh, and then I invited everybody to Calvary, and I walked out because my work was done. And I also did a transaction. So, well, I appreciate that. Um, thank you. I wish I could say that happened everywhere I go, but it doesn't happen everywhere. Sometimes I go to Publix, and I'm at the deli, and I want something to break out, and it's just, hi, I'd like some turkey and salami, and that's it. It's just turkey and salami, and that's all there is. But, uh, But the point is this, is that you take whatever has been entrusted to you, and you develop it because our master is gonna hold us accountable for what we've done. And that means whatever it is, I mean, our gifts, our abilities, our money, the opportunities that God gives us, all of it matters because God wants us to use it to make a difference in this world. Listen, too many People want God to do the miraculous in their lives, but they have spent so much of their lives just burying what God has given them and putting it in the ground. Listen, a lot of times the reason why people don't experience miracles is because they've never put themselves in a place where they need one. We only see our talent double if we develop it. And because we live with the reality that the master is coming to reward us for the good work that we've done with what he has entrusted to us. More on that in a moment. But I want I to drill down more on this, on this story, and then we're going to close it with something real heavy. But um, the second thing I want to tell you about this, still talking about this story, 
this parable of the talents, uh, if you're a note taker, number two is that I need to be about God's business. Remember, the point of the parable that Jesus is telling us is that we need to be about his business while we wait for his return. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, Jesus told the story in a different way. But he said, a certain nobleman went to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called 10 of his servants and delivered to them 10 minas, which is a uh, currency of money, and said to them, do business till I come. So Jesus is telling his disciples that we need to be productive for the kingdom while we're here. So how do we do that? I'm going to give you three things, three ways in particular. Number one, if you're a note taker, is don't compare yourself. Gratitude walks out the door the moment we start comparing ourselves to others. There is a passage in this story that we read that I have underlined in my Bible, and I I put it in your notes. It says uh, in verse 15, and he gave, uh, to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, and this is what I underlined, each according to his own ability. A lot of times we want God to do more in our lives. And listen, this is important to hear. If you want God to do more, then become more. If God has only give, if you've been given two talents, listen, don't feel superior to the guy who got one and don't feel inferior to the guy who got five. Instead, double your gifting. But comparing and griping um, about why you didn't get five doesn't change what you got. You've got to put your abilities to work and then watch God multiply it. Um, my kids, my older two, Mia and Xander, they both took swim lessons when they were young and they are excellent swimmers. And, uh, one day we were out in the pool swimming and my son Xander challenged me to a two lap race in our pool. And I immediately said yes, because I think it's very important for kids to lose to their dad. And, um, I I don't let my kids win. I know that there are parents who do that. I'm not into that. You got to earn it. When, you, when my kids beat me, it means something because I am super competitive and it doesn't matter how old you are, I'm gonna win. And so I'm, I was super competitive with my, we were like, my kids were learning checkers. You know how they learn checkers? By losing. And so until they, uh, and my dad did that with me. I mean, um, <laughs> I didn't beat my dad in ping pong. And I've shared this before. Um, my dad loves ping pong. I love ping pong. I didn't beat my dad in ping pong until I was 35 years old. My dad was 70, okay? And I mean, and my dad would, he wouldn't just beat you. I mean, he would just humiliate you in the process. So you didn't just lose, but you felt bad about yourself when it was over. And so anyway, so he would, you would play him and he would get a point. Like, <laughs> he would just laugh every time he got a point. And then when he wouldn't get a point, like, hmm. Uh, like as if this was some kind of aberration in the space-time continuum that he didn't get a point. Anyway, and then at the end, I remember the day that I beat him, I was, I, I was 35. I, you, I, I almost cried. I mean, I was so happy that I finally beat him. I've been trying to beat him since I was seven years old, okay? And I finally beat him. And my dad, he did not say, wow, son, you really did a great job. You know, you've taken the mantle, whatever. Any, any, any kind of encouraging dad thing. You know what he said? He says, wow, I can't believe how bad I've gotten. And uh, <laughs> it, it's like, And it's like, oh, I wonder why Pastor Bob has emotional problems. See the aforementioned story, all right? And so, and I'm telling you, because he he wouldn't just, like I said, he wouldn't just beat you. When you play ping pong with my dad, if you hit, if the ball was, if 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 you if you uh, volleyed and it was too high, he was slamming it. 
and he knew how to slam it in such a way so that it hit you in the face every time. So, I mean, to tell you how many times I've had a ping pong ball hit in my face with the cackling laugh um, of my dad, who just thinks that is the best thing in the world that could happen to his youngest son. Uh, I mean, once again, it's like, now I know why he has problems. And uh, so anyway, um, so back to the pool. So um, I, Xander's like, hey, dad, let's have a race. And I said, that's fine. So at, after, uh, so before we raced, Mia and Xander were going to race. And Xander was actually winning. But he kept looking back to see where Mia was. And then Mia's not, she's just going for it. And so Mia ends up winning because Xander keeps looking back to see how close she is. And I, and I tell him, and I say, you got to stop looking back because you cannot win if you're looking backwards. Everything you want in your life is ahead of you. Now, I don't know why I give my kids advice that they end up then using against me. So Xander and I start racing. And I mean, this kid smokes me. And it was so bad, I just demanded a rematch because something had to be wrong. And I just couldn't let it stand. So we race again, and he wins again. Anyway, we raced 10 times, and he wins all 10 times. That's not really important. <laughs> then my wife gets in the pool, and we all do a race. And my wife destroys all of us, because apparently she is part mermaid. And then I just got out of the pool. I'm like, whatever, swimming races are dumb. What do you think of that? And I just left. And so <laughs> Now, this is the thing that's so important is that the minute that we keep looking around and, whoa, who's got, who's got five and who's got two, who's got one? Listen, this, the minute that we start comparing whatever it is that God has entrusted to us, we will kill the good that, that God wants to do. I'm telling you, what we've got to do is take what God has given us, accept it with grace, and uh, develop it and deploy it into the world and watch God multiply the effect that it could have. Second thing that's important is we've got to maximize our abilities. That means we invest in our gifts and fan the gifts into flame that God has given to us. Uh, Paul would tell Timothy this. He says, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Listen, you and I don't become a master um, uh, at anything. Um, even, like, we, even when God gives us an incredible gift, right? One, two, or five talents. You don't become a master of the gift that you have without intentional investment. No one becomes a virtuoso musician without thousands of hours of practice. No one becomes a great artist or chef or writer or entrepreneur or whatever without untold hours of investment. And those hours that are spent in obscurity are spent to take that gift and fan it into flame. And listen, you say, oh yeah, that's true, that works, that, that's, that's true vocationally. But listen, do you know that it's also true um, in every other area of your life? Do you know that if you want your marriage to flourish, you've got to invest in your, in your marriage? It's just, it's just the reality. You know, it's the reason we do this couples retreat every year. And I have this thing, I want to do this study. I want to track the lives of people who go to our couples retreat every year compared to those who don't. And I'm telling you, um, I, I believe that the, the data is going to tell us something because, and listen, it's because you come to the retreat that we do every year 
And you're just gonna spend the weekend investing in your relationship. And there is just something incredible that God does when you invest in the gift that God has given you. But to think that we're gonna have something great without investing is not realistic. We just think, well, I just thought it was gonna be, you know, um, I thought that I was gonna do what I want and then my spouse was gonna do everything I want and then we were, it was gonna be happy. And uh, that's just not, not the way it works. Um, the way it works is we take the spark that God gives us and we fan it into flame. Listen, that's how you thank God for the gifts that he's given you. You steward them well. Last thing, and then we're gonna move on, is uh, be found faithful. The problem with the servant who hid his talent is that he didn't do anything with what was given to him. He was literally apathetic towards the opportunities that God gave him. And this is important for us because sometimes we hear about opportunities. I just told you about the retreat. And, um, and by the way, that's not a sales pitch. You know, our retreat, we don't promote it that much. It sells out every year. And then people call us like two weeks before, hey, I'd really like to go on the retreat. And like, hey, it sold out four months ago. We'll put you on for next year. But dude, I'm telling you this because, and my, isn't like Valentine's Day soon, right? There you go. All right. Get this as a Valentine's Day gift and your wife will love you forever because she'll still be your wife. So anyway, um, so that's my hard sales pitch on that. Anyway, but here's the thing that happens, right? How did this guy who got one talent become so apathetic? It was because he had an opportunity to do something, but he didn't receive it with gratitude and didn't do anything with it. It's just, yeah, whatever. And sometimes, let me tell you how that happens here at Calvary, is that we hear about opportunities to serve and opportunities, hey, you should come to membership and really get, become connected to the church. And there's opportunities to grow through retreats like we mentioned and groups that we do and classes that we offer and seminars that we teach. And sometimes we keep saying no or we get the connection card and say, oh yeah, I'm interested in that. I'll sign up for it and not show up. Um, and then after a season of time, we think that's not a big deal. Let me tell you what happens after a season of time is we wonder why don't I have the same passion for God that I once had and here's the reason why. Because we took the thing that God gave us and we buried it in the ground. Listen, and here's what I know. I don't think this servant started out that way. This servant, uh, this master probably could have chosen from any group of servants. He chose these three. And this guy had to have been faithful. And maybe I'm reading into it too much. But I'm guessing that this guy had to be faithful to some degree to be entrusted with what we said was about $1.1 million dollars to invest. But apathy begins to set in and begins to resent the thing that's asked of him. And listen, it's a dangerous place to live. And how do we change that? How do we get the passion back and the joy back in service? Listen, it's to make sure that we're going to do what God says regardless of how we feel. If, if I, I'm telling you, for all the times I've had people tell me, oh man, I'm just not feeling it. Listen, your feelings are the worst indicator of what you should or shouldn't be doing. You know why? Because emotions are God-given, but they should never be the only factor in our decision-making because our emotions are so fickle. And you and I, if we stood, like we all came up, we could all tell a story of how we thought one way very strongly and the next day we completely changed our mind. And that's why I've ever noticed that there's, whenever you put the word emotional in front of something, right? I made an emotional decision. Really? And uh, yeah, I just, I was, you know, emotionally speaking, right? You ever notice that those are never wise moments, right? You ever call somebody and, and you know, you ever have done emotional eating? 
Nobody? Okay, I'm just, I'm just talking to myself. All right, three, the three of us, we're going to start a group together. I'll bring the pizza, all right? So anyway, we'll do some emotional eating and then talk about it. So uh, first up, we're going to talk about my dad and ping pong. That's going to be a thing. And so, <laughs> but listen, but, here's, but this is what happens. Like, you never call somebody on the phone like, hey, what are you doing? Oh, I'm eating some cauliflower and kale. I'm like, wow, you must be emotional eating. Like, no, you're just like, wow, why are you eating things that taste like death? Um, and so, but if you're like, well, what are you doing? I'm eating cheeseburgers and cake and I'm washing it down with a milkshake. Like, oh boy, there's a little emotional eating going on over there, right? And so, but we recognize that God invites you and I to be part of the kingdom work that he's been doing throughout history. He's already given us the gifts. Here's what he asks of us, that we do our part that we develop the gifts that he's given to us, whether it's one talent or two or five. If we're faithful with it, he'll multiply it. All right, now we've got to talk about some heavy stuff before we close. He says this in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as a shepherd divides the she- his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer and say to him, Lord, when did we see you? hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink when did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you or or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you and the king will answer and say to them assuredly i say to you inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren you did it to me and then he will say to those on the left hand depart from me you cursed into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not uh, take me in. I was naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And then they will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. And if you pause there and uh, give me your attention. Last thing, if you're a note taker, is that I need to understand God's heart. This is one of the most misunderstood and misapplied passages of uh, Scripture. If I had a nickel for every time I saw a picture of someone giving a homeless person a a sandwich and quoting this verse, we'd all be millionaires. Um, And that's not to say we shouldn't help the homeless or visit those in prison or visit the sick. Of course we should. And there are many Bible verses that encourage us to do that. This just isn't one of them. Remember the topic of the last two chapters. They said, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? That's the question that Jesus is answering. And he's ending this section talking about what we should be about as we wait for his return. So Jesus is giving us a teaching on the end times scenario. And then he's giving us a piece of information that helps us understand a couple of prophecies that are in the book of Joel 
that after, we, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the tribulation, the seven-year period of God just pouring out his wrath on the earth. After the tribulation, Jesus returns with his church and establishes his kingdom on the earth for a period of a thousand years that's called the millennium. That's talked about in Revelation chapter 20. But here's the question. There are people, and this is kind of an interesting thing. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but um, there are people who survive the tribulation. That is, now, according to Bible uh, scholars, about half of the earth's population gets wiped out during the tribulation, but about half of the earth's population survives. So what happens to these people? Do they go into the kingdom? Do they get kicked out of the kingdom? This is what this, uh, what theologians call the sheep and goats judgment is about, that the people are being separated uh, on the left and the right. The people on the right are blessed and are able to go in, and those on the left are not. Now, some people, and I know that I'm getting very technical, so just if this doesn't make sense, just write it down, and at some point you're going to keep studying and learning. It's all going to click. But um, for those of you that know a little bit more, let me just kind of, if I can drill down a little deeper and give you a little bit of a graduate level understanding of this. Um, some people believe that this is what's called the great white throne judgment, which happens at the end of Revelation 20. It's not. It's different for several reasons. One is the timing is different because this Sheep and goats judgment takes place before the millennium. The white, great white throne judgment happens after the millennium. The place is different. The great white throne judgment happens in heaven. This judgment happens in what's called the Valley of Jehoshaphat, or today it's called the Kidron Valley. Uh, in the Gospels, it's called the Kidron Valley. And uh, the book of Joel, chapter 3, explains what's happening here. Uh, the Kidron Valley, or the Valley of Jehoshaphat, is the valley in between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives. And if you come with us to Israel in November, we'll start at the Mount of Olives. And then we'll go down, we'll walk down into the Kidron Valley, and then we'll come up to uh, the Temple Mount. The third thing is the subjects are different. The great white throne judgment is primarily for unbelievers. This judgment is for the people of the nations who survive the tribulation. And the criteria for entering the millennium will be their treatment of Israel. That's why Jesus says, when you did this for the least of these, my brethren, who are Jesus' brethren, the Jewish people. So the people that helped the Jewish people during the tribulation, when they were being attacked and persecuted, um, they will have the opportunity to enter into the millennial reign of Jesus. And this is why when the Bible talks about this, it talks about it here in the story that we read before. Remember the one, two, five talents? And they say, hey, I doubled it. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. Now I make you ruler over many things. So between that passage, Revelation 20, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we realize that there is, um, the Bible says that those of us that are part of the bride of Christ, the church, that we are going to rule and reign with Christ. And the people that we are going to be overseeing and serving and helping are these people that are coming into, uh, that come through the tribulation and go into the uh, millennial kingdom of Jesus. And so we're going to rule and reign with him all over the earth. I plan on overseeing the island of Hawaii. You find your own station to serve in, but that area is going to be taken. So according to Daniel chapter 12, this process takes about 45 days to separate the sheep and the goats. And the people are sorted. And then Jesus commends the people on the right, as we read, enter the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, that these people are blessed to enter the kingdom of God and enjoy the blessings therein. The people on the left who did not help Israel 
don't enter the kingdom of God. Instead, they are carried away to judgment. A couple of weeks ago, I told you that when we talked about um, the days of Noah, it said that there will be two uh, grinding at the mill. One will be taken, the other left. There'll be two in the field. One will be taken, the other left. This is what's happening here. One is taken to judgment. The other is left to enter into the millennium. Now, the thing that I want to focus on as we close is what he says in verse 41. It says, then he will say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, this is the thing that I think is important for us um, to talk about as we close. Hell was not created for people. I believe hell is a real place, but it was not created for people. It was created for the devil and his angels, according to Jesus. But hell serves an important purpose. Hell is the place for people who hate God and want nothing to do with him. Timothy Keller, uh, who was a pastor in New York City and um, author of many best-selling books, my favorite being this one called The Reason for God, he captures in the book what many people think, kind of modern people think about hell and judgment. He says it this way. He says, modern people inevitably think that hell works like this. God gives us time, but if we haven't made the right choices by the end of our lives, he casts our souls into hell for all eternity. As the poor souls fall through space, they cry out for mercy, but God says, too late, you had your chance, now you will suffer. This caricature misunderstands the very nature of evil. So, what is hell really? Let me tell you what hell is not. It's not Satan's headquarters. Um, it, it's, I can assure you of this, Satan has never even been there. He's going there, but he's never even been there. And there's lots of metaphors that the Bible uses to describe hell. One is fire and the other is darkness. And last time I checked, though, if there was darkness and you lit a fire, it would light it up. But you have to understand the metaphor and what, what Jesus is saying. God isn't burning people alive. What does fire do? It disintegrates. And we see, listen, we see that disintegration happen before our eyes. You and I have all met people who are consumed by their addictions, they're consumed by their anger, and they're consumed by their evil ambitions. And the fire starts disintegrating them to the point where all that's left is the addiction, the anger, or the evil ambition. And even though we know their lives would be so much better if they would just let go of all that, it's all that's left because the fire has disintegrated everything else. Darkness is the second thing. What does darkness do? It isolates. That's why the people, oh, no one understands me. Everyone's against me. Tim Keller writes in the same chapter on hell. He says, in short, hell is simply one's freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory into eternity. No one ever asks to leave hell. The very idea of heaven seems to them a sham. Here's my point. You know, you read through the Bible, you know what you find? No one is going to hell against their will. Listen, God created us as free beings who can make choices. And for God to force us to choose him violates that choice. That's why C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, calls hell the greatest monument to human freedom. And whether we want to believe it or not, God is so incredibly gracious with humanity. And there are people who despise that. They don't want it. They want truly life without God. And you know what hell is? Hell is them getting their wish. And as oddly as it sounds, that's why there's no rain. That's why there's fire and darkness. Because God's common grace is taken away and they are left to themselves. 
If you can remember this far back when we taught through the Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus said this, your father in heaven, he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Mark Clark in his book, The Problem of God, says this, here is the haunting part. There is no water. In other words, hell is the place where the common grace of God, the blessings and comforts he provides to all of us, no longer exist. All the stuff we enjoy that we think we possess because we worked so hard for it is no longer there. God's grace is absent. Hell exposes the lie that we have told ourselves since the garden, the lie that we don't need God. My friends, this is why you read through the Bible, you know what you find? No one ever asks to leave hell because it is a room that is locked from the inside because everyone who's there would have to acknowledge God to leave. That's why philosopher J.P. Uh, Moreland says, hell is the place for people who, given what is needed to belong in heaven, submission to Jesus, simply don't want to go. It's the one thing they refuse to do, and that's why they, cho they choose to go there. So here's the thing I just, for a moment, want to share. You know, Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. In fact, if you take everything that Jesus said about hell and stack it next to every other person in the Bible, every other book of the Bible, and combine them, Jesus said more about hell than every other uh, Bible writer combined. Why? Because he's the one who took hell for us. Listen, people don't come to Jesus because they want to escape hell. Those types of conversions don't last. We come to Jesus because we see his love and that he took hell upon himself on the cross and willingly loved us enough to do so. That's why, and this is so common in our culture, is that you have you know, authors and pastors that are trying to remove hell. Well, that's just, you got to understand, that's like a metaphor. That's not real. Hell's not a real place and, and, and whatever. And they do that to make God seem more loving when what they're really doing is making God less loving by doing that. If there's no hell, it costs God nothing to love us. But if there is a hell and Jesus bore it on the cross, then it costs God everything to love us. And Jesus' death and subsequent resurrection was the beginning of God making everything that's wrong in this world right. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you for that reality that you're beginning to make everything that's wrong in the world right and that the resurrection was the beginning of it. So Lord, I pray, help us. Help us to redeem the time Help us to take the opportunities that we have, whether we've been given one or two or five talents, help us to maximize them so that we can honor you. That's our prayer. That's our hope. We pray it in Jesus' name and everybody said, amen. amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.